turn in your Bibles, please, to John's Gospel and chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound thereof, but cannot tell where it comes and where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Are you a master of Israel, and know you not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, We speak that we know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you of earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thanks so much, Daniel. Um, in preparing these talks, I uh, got into chapter 2, and then I wondered, where will I go after chapter 2? Well, logically, you should go to chapter 3. But it's probably the best-known passage, isn't it, in, in all of John's Gospel. And even as Daniel read it for us there now, uh, we can almost recite uh, the reading without actually looking at the text itself. And I'm still thinking, you know, what would I want to say to my 25-year-old self? Um, and as I read this and thought about it, you know, I wish somebody had explained to me what the new birth actually was. I was raised in a Christian home. Mum and dad were believers. I uh, was taken to church twice every Sunday in Sunday school. Always taught, you know, the importance of being born again. But I think it took me some time before I really grasped uh, just how tremendous, wonderful and marvellous it is to be regenerated, to receive the new birth. So if you'll bear with me, folks. I'll get a little bit off my chest here uh, as I work through this passage. Um, but I think there are important uh, lessons for you to grasp, even when it comes to such basic matter, well, understanding who we are and then beginning to share the gospel with others. So it's probably the most common Bible text posted on walls, billboards, signs, outside gospel halls and mission halls all across this land, particularly across this province. You must be born again. Used extensively in evangelistic literature, uh, much preaching, 
and personal evangelism is frequently repeated phrase that people use. And for many, you see, you must be born again is the definitive call of the gospel which people need to hear and to which they need to respond. So right now there's a row going on in Causeway Coast and Glens Council uh, over the text that appears in Port Stewart. I'm sure you've noticed it. If you're around there, come round by the convent, walking down, big text up, the sea is his and he made it, and then you must be born again. So in these days of equality and all the rest, they need to do an equality impact study on the texts that are posted in Port Stewart to find out whether you must be born again will be allowed to be repainted uh, because that's, uh, that's what they, they've been suggested that they do. And when you think about it, I want you to think about this, you must be born again is not in itself really good news, is it? And it's also never suggested in the New Testament that you must be born again is the heart of the gospel or the object of faith. When Paul travelled and preached all across the ancient world, this was never one of his emphases, never one of his main messages. He preached Christ crucified, risen, exalted. He called on people to turn to Christ in faith and in repentance. But nowhere do we find Paul preaching and telling people, you must be born again. So we need to think carefully about what this idea of being born again, and specifically what Jesus means as he had this conversation with Nicodemus and tells him you must be born again. And in a community where this expression is used widely to summarize the gospel, I think it's essential that we've got a very clear understanding of what the Bible says about the new birth. And we need to understand it ourselves so we can even explain it to others. Five times in this passage in John 3, we have a reference to being born again, or they, strictly speaking, the phrase is born from above. Uh, the Greek word can be translated either way, again or from above. And both ideas are applicable. Jesus is saying that for anyone to enter the kingdom of God, the realm of salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, that person must be born from above. And it's what theologians refer to as the doctrine of regeneration, which is at the very heart of our understanding of salvation. So this passage really leads us into a careful consideration of that doctrine. It was many years ago now that the most publicised and recognised evangelist, Billy Graham, published a book, a book that really became a, a staple in the evangelical world for many years and spun off lots of other evangelistic resources. And the title of the book is How to Be Born Again. It's a how-to book. And the book gives steps to being born again. Now, I'm a great admirer of Billy Graham as a preacher and as an evangelist. Uh, and the, uh, the approach he adopted in that, that book was certainly well-intentioned. It calls for repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the book and its title fail to understand the principle that Jesus is teaching here. The whole point of this text is that something must happen to you. Something that you don't participate in. 
There is no how to be born again. There are no steps you can take to being born again. Nowhere does Jesus tell Nicodemus, do this, say this, pray this, and you'll be born again. In verse 8, he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, but it's not a command. It's a statement of fact. God's kingdom is only for people who have been given God's life, who have received the new birth. You can't live in his kingdom unless you are partaker of the divine nature, unless you're a new creation. And the analogy that Jesus uses is so simple, so basic, it can hardly be understood. The analogy is birth. Everybody gets that. You did not participate in your own birth. There are no books out there to tell you how to be born physically. You don't have anything to do with your physical birth. And that's the reason our Lord used this analogy. Just as you play no role in your physical birth, so you play no role in your spiritual birth. That's the point of the analogy. Jesus is saying uh, that the kingdom is only open to people who know that it's 100% a divine miracle and who forfeit all attempts and efforts to participate. And yet, in many evangelical traditions, the statement of John 3, 7 is virtually regarded as the equivalent to a command to believe in Jesus Christ. It's understood as something we must do. But in the New Testament, the new birth is not something we do. It's something which God gives. And the whole point of the metaphor lies in the fact that the new birth is from above. Regeneration, or the new birth, is a divine activity in us in which we are not the actors, but the recipients. Telling someone to be born again is a bit like telling a blind man to see, or telling a lame man to walk, or telling a, de a dead man to come to life again. It just, it's just not possible. And that's really the paradox of the gospel. For the gospel tells us that the one thing we need the most is the only thing outside our power to perform. So let's look at the text. I imagine some of you will have questions and we'll get a bit of discussion on that one. Um, and in a sermon on this passage, John MacArthur makes three very neat alliterated points which kind of analyzes the passage. He talks about the sinner's worry, the saviour's words, and the spirit's work. So if we can kind of divide it in that kind of tripartite way as he does, let, let me try and go through this. Uh, the first point is simply this, all around the sinner's worry, that trying to be your own saviour leads to emptiness and to anxiety. I've got a word for you. You can throw this in when you're talking to someone. Autosoteric 
Uh, it's a word B.B. Warfield uses in his little book called The Plan of Salvation. Somebody reminded me about it the other day. So if you really want to impress people with your theological acumen, you can say, you know, well, there are people who are auto-satiric, you know. Uh, they're, they're, they're trying to save themselves. And, and that's really the story of Nicodemus, isn't it? There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you've come from God as a teacher. No one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. These, uh, this part of this elite group of students of the Old Testament law who obeyed that law, as well as all the rabbinic traditions that grew up around the law, they were fastidious. They were the most devoted of all Jews to the Old Testament, every bit of the Jewish tradition. They were also separatists and isolationists. They wanted nothing to do with the ordinary people if they could avoid it. In fact, later in this Gospel of John, <clears throat> you'll find that they, they deemed the entire population, apart from themselves, to be cursed. Uh, they thought that the people were ignorant and cursed by God. And they didn't see themselves in some kind of role ministering to people. They simply cut themselves off from ordinary people. They were the arch-hypocrites. Jesus said, you remember, they're like whitewashed tombs, clean, pristine on the outside, but full of rotting, stinking flesh on the inside, bones on the inside, pretending to be religious, <clears throat> pretending that they were leading people to heaven. Actually, all they were doing was creating sons of hell. And in his heart, even though part of this group, even though a leader and a teacher within this group, Nicodemus knew that something was wrong. He knew he was a fake. He knew that he was a hypocrite. He had religion on the outside, but he was empty on the inside, full of fear and doubt and anxiety. It was tearing up his soul. So here's his problem. Who does he go to? He's meant to be the teacher. How can he possibly lead and teach others when he's so confused and so empty himself. And then he comes across Jesus. And Jesus is a teacher who's at a different level from him. Nicodemus has never seen a miracle. He's never seen anybody who did a miracle. He's never met anyone who saw a miracle. So he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, we know that you've come from God. Nobody could do what you're doing unless he was from God. And in his own heart, he knows he doesn't have that connection with God. He knew that Jesus came from God because of the signs and miracles he had done. Here was the teacher who was above him, a teacher who was different from him. And his heart is crying out for reality. And so he comes <clears throat> with this introduction. And Jesus knows what's in his heart. Jesus largely ignored what he said. If you note verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, and we're talking now in the third person, we're going to have a discussion here. Jesus is going to talk theology, talk about the kingdom. It's not personal right now. It's in the third person, truly, truly, which means this is new, brand new. And he says it again in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you need to know that you're not going to get one foot in the door of God's kingdom unless you're born again. Now, why does he say that? 
nothing to do with what Nicodemus said in his introduction. The reason Jesus said that was because he knew what was really worrying, what was really bugging Nicodemus. Here's the Pharisee, here's the committed legalist, here's the man who's reached the apex of Judaism. He's not in the kingdom and he knows it. His heart is full of fear, he has no peace, he has no joy, no sense of assurance or forgiveness and his heart is crying out. What do I do? Or what do I stop doing? That's because all he knows is a do religion. An auto-soteric religion. His system is a system of works. It's all about performance. And it's all about duty. And I guess, wherever you work and people you talk to, you'll find many people around us who are afflicted with the same worries and the same anxieties. Many of our friends are trying to live good lives, trying to be good in all kinds of ways, telling themselves that they're honest and that they're sincere, but it's not working for them. That's because a performance-based salvation by works never, ever meets the needs of our hearts. Trying to be your own saviour, being auto-soteric, just results in weariness, in frustration and in anxiety. And like Nicodemus, those who try to follow that approach just know in their heart that they're not really in touch with God. And our Lord says to him, nobody enters the kingdom who's not born again. You've got to go all the way back to the start and start all over again. And by that comment, Jesus simply says this, all accumulated religion, All accumulated morality, all accumulated human goodness adds up to zero. It means nothing. It's meaningless. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And not just you, Nicodemus. It applies to everyone. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Statement of fact. And why does that apply to Anyone and to everyone. Well, Jesus really gives three answers here. So we turn the second part to the, to the Savior's word. That when it comes to the new birth, Jesus tells us that we are absolutely helpless. So here's all the anxiety of those who try to save themselves. And when it comes to the new birth, you see how, how complex this is? You can't do anything about it, says Jesus. You are helpless. And uh, notice what Jesus says. Number one, we are flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, verse six. It simply means that human nature is powerless to produce spiritual life and spiritual reality. Uh, in John 1.13, the uh, opening chapter, Jesus has explained That the birth which makes us children of God is not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not quite the same as Paul's use of the word flesh. Uh, Paul uses the word flesh to refer to human beings and all their sinfulness particularly. But it's clear that for both Paul and for John... It's the case, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
The point is this. Only a work of the Spirit can bring us into the kingdom of the Spirit. Human effort can't give rise to anything other than what is earthly and fleshly. There's no evolution from flesh to spirit. Natural human birth produces people who belong to the earthly family of humankind, but not to the children of God. Only the spirit gives birth to spirit. So number one, we're flesh. Number two, we can't see. Humankind is blind in its spirit. In our natural state, we can't see the kingdom of God, verse 3. And in this context, see means to recognize or to appreciate or to understand the significance of the kingdom. When, when Christ was here on earth, he taught the truths of the kingdom in a whole range of great parables about the kingdom. And even though people physically heard the voice of Christ as he taught, they didn't hear his voice as he called them to repentance and faith and to enter the kingdom. At one level, they saw in their minds the vivid, the clear pictures that he painted. Nobody was a better teacher or preacher than Christ. But at another level, they didn't see Christ himself as he called, him to, as he called them to follow him. As Jesus said in Matthew 13, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And that blindness is also characteristic of Nicodemus. It's amazing, I find this in church life, that there are lots of people who have been involved in church, lots of people who have been exposed to Christian teaching for many years, who are similarly blind and they just don't see it or get it. Um, a lovely girl in my first congregation in Kells, who was a leader in the CE, really involved in, in church and all the rest. And it was one Easter Sunday after the, after the service, she came to me and she said, you know, Stafford, I've just become a Christian. I never saw it before. But today in the service, God spoke to me. And her life, I was amazed. I said, Pat, I thought you were a believer. I thought, no, she said, really never got it. I was doing all these things, but never really got it. And there are lots of people who have been active in church and Christian circles, heavily involved, but they are blind to the reality of the kingdom. They just don't see it. So I go out cycling with a couple of friends normally on a Saturday morning, missing it this morning, uh, and we, we cycle from Portadown down to Points Pass if we're really energetic. We might go to Jarrett's Pass um, or might go a bit further even down into Newry. Um, anybody from Newry here? You know the full Irish, there's a wee place in there and they serve this full Irish breakfast, great. But we, we, go, down, <coughs> we go down there on the way back, uh, sometimes we stop at Sintons and Scarva to get a cup of coffee. So I went into Sintons and I met my friend Leslie. And Leslie came occasionally to first port it down um, uh, and he was friendly with another man I visited. Uh, and we used to talk quite a bit. But I, I met him, you know, last summer on the toolpath one day, and I stopped with him to speak, to, speak with him. And he says, Stafford, you'll never know. I have something to tell you. He says, I've got saved. He said, I started going uh, to this church in Rough Island a couple of times, and uh, I've committed my life to Christ. And his life has just been changed. He sees things differently. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm in sentence on a Saturday morning. There's Leslie with three other men sitting having coffee. 
And I went over and I spoke to them and we had a wee quick word. I said something about church or the gospel. I came back and had coffee with my own friends. And then as we're leaving, Leslie came over and said, Stuffy, you'll never believe it. <laughs> and she came over and spoke to us there. We've just been talking about the Bible and about Christianity for the rest of the other half hour of the conversation. And he says, I try to tell those fellas that they're going to live forever. Somewhere or other, they're going to live forever. But they just don't see it. They just don't get it. And poor Leslie was experiencing the frustration that many of us experience, even though we explain the truth as clearly and precisely as we can. Like Jesus, we use all kinds of pictures, all kinds of analogies. Some people just don't see it. And here's Nicodemus. Knowing religion, knowing Judaism inside out, very open and very clear as he confesses in verse 9, how can these things be? I just don't see it. I don't get it. In spite of all <clears throat> his theology, in, fact, in spite of his prominent position as a teacher, he couldn't see the kingdom. It's not just that people are blind. They live in the darkness. Uh, a little later in the chapter, Jesus tells us that not only are men and women in the dark, they love the darkness and they hide from the light. And you know how Paul concurs with that in his writings. He says in Ephesians 5 that at one time we were darkness. We were committed to doing the deeds of darkness. But in the gospel God shines his light into our darkness. And we're called out of the darkness into the light. But Nicodemus only had a dim view of all this. Notice how he comes to Jesus by night. Is that just an historical detail? that John has included here. Rabbis often debate it late into the night. Maybe Nicodemus was coming from a late night meeting. Or was he coming under the cloak of darkness so that when no one would see him approaching this teacher, this wonder worker from Galilee? Probably the best understanding of that detail is to note the way in which John, all the way through this gospel, uses the themes of light and darkness in his writing. I believe he intends us to understand that Nicodemus is approaching Jesus as someone who is spiritually and morally living in the darkness of the night. He comes to Jesus at night, but his own personal night is darker and blacker than he himself knew. And he sits in his darkness before the light of the world. He thinks that he sees and understands things clearly, but he's in the dark. As Jesus said later in John 9, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. The greatest darkness that people can experience is to think that they're in the light when they're actually in the dark. And then to think, that the light of Christ is really a dark shadow from which we should all escape. Isn't that the irony? Isn't that the paradox of our world and our society and our community? That in its darkness, it thinks it's progressive. It thinks it's enlightened. And it views the light of Christ as being a darkness that needs to be repelled. 
how foolish and how very sad. Sinclair Ferguson quotes a very helpful section from C.S. Lewis's final Narnia tale, The Last Battle, in order to illustrate this, and I I thought I would borrow it. Uh, Towards the end of time, Lewis pictures a group of dwarfs who have entered the kingdom of Narnia. Aslan then appears, and in the scene, Lewis describes uh, the profound difference between the members of Christ's kingdom who can see and those who can't. So, Shelley, will you come and read us that wee section from the last battle? Thank you. Aslan, said Lucy through her tears, could you, will you do something for these poor dwarfs? Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and gave a long growl. Lo, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, Hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable, trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarfs' knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices, and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand but it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he had got a bit of an old turnip, and a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, ugh, Fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at? Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had, and they started grabbing and snatching and went on to quarrelling, till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Thanks, Shelley. Wonderful, isn't it? So many people, like the dwarfs, as Jesus described in John 9, are those who love the darkness rather than the light, want to believe their own myth rather than come out of the darkness into the light. So, um, it's quite clear, we're flesh, we cannot see And the third thing Jesus says is we're powerless. We cannot enter the kingdom of God. Without the new birth, without a work of God's spirit, we're weak, unable, and powerless, spiritually speaking. That's the concerted teaching of the Bible. In in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says the natural man does not and cannot receive spiritual reality. In Romans 8, Paul says the carnal mind is at enmity with God. And neither wills nor is able to do God's will. And this is the teaching that runs completely at odds 
with the philosophy and teaching of this world, indeed at odds with the teaching of all the false religions of this world. All false religions and philosophies are spelt D-O, do. It's only Christianity that's spelt D-O-N-E, done. We are not captains of our souls. We are not the masters of our own destiny. No matter how much we strive and do and achieve, we can never make it into God's kingdom. We are not dependent on human performance or human achievement, but our salvation is all of grace. Only God can give us spiritual life. Only God can give us spiritual rebirth. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Thou must save, and thou alone. So that's the Saviour's words. What about then, thirdly and finally, the Spirit's work? Because it's only the powerful work of the Holy Spirit that can give us new life. And let me, what can we say about the, this new birth, this doctrine of regeneration? Number one, as we've said already, it's heavenly in its origin. It comes from above. That's the point Jesus makes to Nicodemus over and over again. He needed to be born of water and of the Spirit. It's only the Spirit that gives birth to Spirit. Just as the wind blows wherever it pleases, so it is, he says, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus seems to follow through on Jesus' words about being born again, i.e. being born for a second time. He asks whether it's possible for someone to re-enter the womb and be born. And the way John uses the word in other places conveys the idea from the top downwards. And if we take it in that sense, we're still able to make sense of Nicodemus' response. When Jesus tells him he needs to be born from above, He lamely asks if another birth is possible. Now, we shouldn't miss the implications of this understanding. If we are members of this kingdom, then it must be as a result of a heavenly birth. We can only be Christians because God has wonderfully intervened in our lives to give us new life. Uh, Sometimes you hear the story of the conversion of some celebrity or some notorious person uh, and we see how their lives have been changed around and we think that's miraculous and that's wonderful. And it is. But the miracle involved in the new birth of ordinary people whose names are not known in the press or in the media is no less miraculous, no less wonderful, no less worthy of joy and celebration in heaven. It involves the same exercise of divine power, the same abundance of God's love and grace. Your conversion is as much an evidence of the power and the grace of God as anyone else's. It's from above. It's heavenly in its origin. And it's utterly amazing and miraculous. The second thing is it's sovereignly bestowed. The wind blows, verse 8, the wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Uh, Nicodemus, again, has been raised and nurtured in a religion that focuses on what we do rather than on what we receive. And he's totally bewildered by this. How can these things be? Here's the perennial response 
and the reaction of people who think that getting to God is all about human effort and all about our performance. And what Jesus taught his disciples was that the enjoyment and the experience of salvation begins not with what we do, but with what God does. And that teaching is reflected in the teaching of Jesus' disciples. Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Or James, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Or Paul, uh, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works. Now, please remember that in emphasizing the initiative of God, it doesn't take away all responsibility from us. Because in this very chapter, John will go on to emphasize the importance of people believing in Christ. And by stating the sovereignty of God in regeneration, we're not denying the importance of that human response of repentance and faith. Uh, you remember how in Luke 13, somebody asked Jesus about this teaching after he'd explained all this. He said, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus replied, strive to enter through the narrow door. Don't get confused. Your duty is to make sure that you follow the way of salvation. You're responsible to repent and believe for yourself. And the third thing is, the new birth is transformative. Regeneration changes us. That's not to say that we're instantly made perfect. What we mean is that just as sin has affected and influenced every area of our lives, so God's grace reaches into every aspect of our experience that was first damaged and corrupted by sin. It's through the new birth that the defiled and the defaced image of God begins to be restored. And then like an embryo in the womb, begins to grow and develop and mature. And Jesus alludes to this work of transformation as he talks with Nicodemus. Our minds are illuminated. We see the kingdom of God. Once I was blind, now I see. That's our experience. We have a new outlook on ourselves. You know the, the words of the old hymn, heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen. Our hearts are purified. There's been a lot of discussion around what it means to be born of water. As Jesus talks about in verse 5, unless one is born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Does that jog your mind, Nicodemus? Water, spirit, spirit, water. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, maybe you've heard people preach on this. Uh, and they've said, well, water and spirit means that water's human birth. Because we say prior to the birth of a child, the waters break. Uh, and you have to have a human birth, you have to have a physical birth, and then a spiritual birth, born of water, physically born, and then born spiritually. Is that really what it means? Is Jesus saying to Nicodemus, first of all, Nicodemus, you have to exist. You have to be a person because non-persons can't be saved. That's kind of ridiculous. Uh, and furthermore, uh, we in the modern world speak of the waters breaking in childbirth, but Hebrews never used that expression. Nicodemus wouldn't have known anything about that. Jesus, rather, is referring to water as a symbol of purification. And that would be a major association in the, in the mind of a Pharisee. Uh, maybe Nicodemus had been down to the Jordan recently. 
and heard John the Baptist preach on the necessity of baptism of repentance for the washing away of sins. But remember, what's Nicodemus's area of expertise? Where did he live? What did he study? It was the Old Testament. Nicodemus, does not, this not ring a bell for you? He knew the Old Testament, massive sections of the Old Testament memorized, very familiar with the prophets. So when he heard water and spirit, where should his mind go? Well, it should go to Ezekiel 36. Principle bound up with the most marvelous passages in the Old Testament describes God's saving work applied to Israel. And it's the same saving work in application to Gentiles throughout history. Here's how salvation works. Uh, if you look at Ezekiel 36:25, you'll notice there the I wills. This is the work of God. And five times God says, I will. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. Water and spirit. A reference again to the creation or to the new creation. Remember, John is a theologian of creation and new creation. And this regenerating work of God, he does by his own will in the heart of the sinner. And he's promising that one day he'll do it not only in individual Jews and Gentiles, but one day the whole nation of Israel. I'll put a new heart in you, a new spirit in you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my ways. That's the water and the spirit. So in the work of regeneration, our hearts are purified. We are washed. Remember how Titus puts it? He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when we're born again, our lives are changed. New tendencies, new dispositions, Towards God. God puts His law in our hearts so that the motivation to serve and glorify God is no longer an external force, no longer an external compulsion, but it's an inward power. So, in regeneration, our minds are illuminated, our hearts are purified, our desires are renewed. What is born of the flesh is flesh, but that to which the Spirit gives birth is spirit and has the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. Paul works that out in Romans 8. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God, doesn't submit to his law, cannot please God. There's no taste for spiritual realities like the dwarfs in Narnia. It may even despise all the lovely things that God offers. But the newborn child of God craves spiritual milk that he or she may grow. They've tasted that the Lord is good and they crave more. So in regeneration we begin a new life. Uh, we've just finished a series of sermons in First John in Hill Street in Lurgan. Uh, John Graham's been instrumental in that series. And, and he's been explaining to us just the changes that result whenever one is born of God. He loves his fellow believers. He overcomes the world. He doesn't go on sinning. The world around us remains a source of temptation to sin. But in rela our relation to that world is radically altered. I wish somebody had explained that to me. I wish somebody had told me clearly, you're born again. You don't have to go in that direction. Your life has been transformed. Your eyes are open to things that other people can't see. Your desires are renewed. You've been purified. You've been brought into a new kingdom. 
And you're now related to other people in that kingdom. And that relationship's marked by a new love and a new affection. This is the powerful testimony of the new birth that human lives are now bound together in strong bonds of Christian love and fellowship. You don't have to sin. You don't have to go on sinning. All that has finished. You've been born again. So that whatever else the new birth does for us, it releases us from the bondage to sin. Christ makes us whole so that we're no longer enslaved. The new birth is the way in which Christ begins the process of making us new and making all things new. My grandfather was converted to Christ at a seaman's rest home in Holyhead in North Wales. Well, he had had a bit of a checkered past before that. He was on a ship that brought guns into Larne in 1914 for the UVF. And he was in a little coaster that went up and down the Irish Sea. And uh, one night in the seaman's rest home in Holyhead, um, Mr. and Mrs. West ran the home and they offered the young seamen who came in there, they got tea and coffee and sandwiches and so on, played table tennis, played snooker. But they had a little epilogue and Mr. West shared the gospel in that little epilogue. But Mrs. West, as she went round the table, she talked to these young fellows, these young men. And my grandfather was, you know, pretty much a drunken seaman. He drank a lot of his money. And she personally began to share the gospel with him. And his life was changed, transformed. He was born again. He came back home to Larne. He, he got a job with the uh, Ministry of Agriculture at Larne Harbour, uh, checking cattle that was going on and off the boats that were going back and forward to, to Great Britain. And, and they gave him a uniform. He had a navy blue uh, serge suit, and he had a, a, on the lapel it said, M-A-N-I, Ministry of Agriculture for Northern Ireland. Uh, and some people would say to him, Jack, uh, what, what do the letters on your... Uh, on your lapel mean always says quite simple made a new individual and he would share how Christ had changed his life folks that's where we're at we've been made new individuals let me say two things in conclusion number one very obvious there are only two two types of people you're either born again and you're in the kingdom or you're not and when we say that we're born again, we're simply acknowledging the miraculous work of God in our lives so that our eyes have been opened. Unlike those dwarfs who didn't see it, we do see it. And we understand there's been a significant and a transformative change as a result of the work of God's Spirit. And the second thing with which I conclude is this. If God sovereignly and graciously brings about the new birth then shouldn't we be praying more in our evangelistic efforts? If the new birth and if regeneration is the work of God, surely we should be praying much more consistently, much more energetically for God to work in the lives of people we know. Because we know that whenever God works, <coughs> the most amazing miracles happen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this marvellous and miraculous work of the Spirit, whereby you open our eyes and you transform and change us.
by your spirit so that we can begin to see your kingdom. And we thank you, Lord, you haven't left us in the darkness. You haven't left us in that state of death and deceit, but you've brought us into your light. And we don't have to sin, Lord. We don't have to follow the devices of the flesh and of our own unregenerated hearts, but we've been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Lord, may that new life of Christ pulsate in our hearts and in our beings so that we may honour you and live for you in a way that brings glory to our great and gracious Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.